This is Story and Rain Talks, the Story and Rain podcast. I'm Tamara, founder and editor in chief. After over 20 years in the fashion and magazine industries, I launched StoryandRain.com, a digital fashion, beauty, and lifestyle publication where we're bridging the gap between reading a magazine and shopping its pages. On this podcast, you'll discover the emerging trends and tastemakers that matter right now. As a catalyst for creativity and through candid conversations with our community of cultural arbiters, we're your resource for discovering today's most interesting people, projects, and products. And we'll explore the origins for game-changing ideas and careers. With our high-low approach to style and the belief that there's magic in the mix, we're going to inspire you to live your most stylish life. This week, I sit down with Harry Josh, one of the very top hairdressers and hair professionals in the industry today. Working in both runway fashion and hair since the early 90s, Harry's career shifted straight into the spotlight after an editor discovered he was responsible for the enviable locks of multiple models' hair, and Harry's particularly famous for Giselle's sun-kissed waves. Off-duty, Harry found himself doing the hair of the models he was friends with at his apartment. And on the podcast, Harry explains how he was able to be at his most creative under those simple circumstances. Harry revolutionized the business nine years ago with his line of Harry Josh Pro Tools and an in-a-class-by-itself hairdryer that changed it all. Harry talks about his recent dedication to pouring time into developing the line, set off by the COVID-19 pandemic when the red carpet and the editorial work he's highly sought after for had dwindled. You'll be inspired by Harry discussing personal and professional integrity and growth, the importance of treating all people with kindness, and how it comes back to him and how it can come back to you tenfold in what he calls his habituated way of thinking. We talk about what he's learned most as an entrepreneur and his advice for those starting out. We discuss Harry's popular Instagram account, a place where he mixes glamorous fashion photos with posts that are sweet nuggets of spiritual growth. We discuss the double-edged sword that is social media and how his approach to it evolves and has evolved. We talk muses and sources of inspiration, meditation, spending time in the kitchen, what hair he's loving now. And I love all the stories about the earlier days in fashion that you'll hear about. And when he worked closely with people like Mark Jacobs, Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Hilary Swank, Rose Byrne, Kate Bosworth, Helena Christensen, Cindy Crawford, Arena Shaikh. Everyone from kings and queens to NASCAR drivers, musicians, politicians, supermodels, and celebrities of all kinds have had their hair transformed by Harry Josh. Here on episode 97, we share his riveting story. Harry Josh. Hi. Hi. How are you? Long time in the making with Harry Josh. We've been trying to make this podcast happen for a while. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so glad we're doing this. Yeah, likewise. I have so many questions for you. All right. And it's interesting because a lot of our paths have weirdly crossed over the years. You'll see when I ask you a few of these questions. So I want to kind of start with a more broad question, less about specific moments in your life. I usually start with specific moments, but in such a fast paced world of trend and change, How do you enjoy the journey? I know that's important to you. What tools do you use for living life that way? I always feel like for me, my life comes first. I choose life over a job, over my looks, over my anything. So when I say life, that's an energy I'm carrying around, a vibration that I need to keep at a certain level in order for me to 
give my best to every person I come across to. So I really protect my energy and do what I need to do to keep my vibration high. And for me, I have a toolbox of many things that I use, but meditation is key. So meditation is probably the greatest gift that was ever given to me, learning how to meditate and learning how to quiet the noise that is around us, especially in an industry like this. And that can confuse us about what we want. Absolutely. That's a very great thing. You just brought that up. It can confuse us. We think we want certain things because we see certain things. We're like, Ooh, that looks good from afar. And then ultimately when you've been in a job, like I have being around so many established people from all walks of life, musicians, politicians, supermodels, celebrities, People who allegedly, or at least from the external looking at them, like, wow, they have everything. They're good looking, they're rich, they're X, Y, Z, da, 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 you name it. Like we look at their Instagram, we're like, oh, wow, what a life. But truthfully, when you work with them, you realize they are so human, just like us. They have their problems. They have their issues. They have their unhappy moments. They get a chance to project, or we all get a chance to project what we want onto our social media to kind of give the illusion of this is what my life is like. But ultimately we don't really get the reality of anybody's life because nobody wants to post bad things. Right. You know what I mean? Unless they're looking for sympathy, you know, like nobody wants to post it. Hey, I got, I got fired from my job today or, Oh, Hey, I gained 10 pounds when I should be losing weight or, <laughs> Hey, you know, my pasta did not work out today. It's burnt. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or like, whatever, like we only show this the high, like look at my gorgeous dish or look at my gorgeous hairstyle or look at my hot six pack or my new boob job or whatever it is. It's like, we're constantly looking for validation externally right. to fill ourselves up because we feel like there's some hole and social media has created this thing that we're now exposed to way too much information. I love that you're bringing up social media because I have a lot of questions for you about social media. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a double-edged sword, like anything in life. Like under the great guys, social media can be amazing. And under the dark guys, social media can be horrible. So it really is intention-based living, right? So like, how do I want to present in the world? What kind of energy do I want to carry when I walk into a room? What kind of energy do I want to carry when they walk around on the streets, grabbing a coffee from Starbucks or getting in an Uber or bumping into someone who likes my dog on the street? Whatever. Those are all examples and moments where you can test your vibration throughout the day. Am I being kind? Am I being nice? Am I able to lift that person slightly higher than when I first came encounter with them. So maybe you met an Uber driver who is like grumpy and it's like, please fix your mask. I'm like, oh, sorry, didn't realize it was sliding. Like, no problem, let me adjust it, you know? It's a really good example, actually. That's funny. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know, I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to be disrespectful. It just slipped. I was talking on the phone. I'm sorry, I'll put it back up, you know? So now I know that this driver may be having a bit of a moment today. Either he's having a bad day, maybe he hasn't had enough customers, whatever it is. I now have an opportunity with that two minute ride to be like, all right, first, let me just make him feel good. Sorry about this sliding. I'm off my phone. Hey, how's your day? Gosh, sure it's tough out there, right? I appreciate the ride. Thank you so much. That three sentences I sent before I got out of the car may have changed his vibration to a little higher. Yeah. Now he's less irritated when the next guy comes in or girl and their mask falls off. And he's like, excuse me, can you put that back up? He's going to be less annoyed because I was able to elevate him. Now imagine as me as a person and as humans, we have that ability all day long to lift whatever we can do every little inch we can. We don't, we can't make a depressed person happy, but you can lift. So if uh, my intention throughout the day is to lift, 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 that means I can't have any weight 
on me. And we walk around with weight on us, right? Yes. I can't help you right now. I'm super late for work. I can't help you right now. I just got dumped on. I can't help you right now because I'm so frustrated because, you know, my rent is due. I'm so frustrated because this shoot got canceled because of COVID. I can't help you right now because I'm going through my own bullshit. Okay. I'm not here to babysit you. So if we walk around with all the weight of the world's problems on us, war, famine, pandemic, yeah, pandemic, whatever all these things are that are weighing heavily on you. And you are now making yourself responsible for carrying the weight of 7 billion people. There's too many injustices. Things aren't being done right. This isn't fair. That isn't fair. So all you're trying to do is balance this weight of 7.5 billion people trying what you think is to do the right thing, right? Ultimately, I think people are good. I think every person on this planet ultimately is good. There's really not that many dark people, but how we navigate through that noise to be of service is very different for everybody. Yes. And so for me, I think my toolbox of intention, meditation, and habituated way of thinking have created this universe in which I coast through minefields untouched constantly. Unbelievable. And a lot less suffering to be able to walk through life in that way. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying like this is something that will happen overnight. I do have bad days, but what I have taught myself or become very good at now that I'm, you know, striding in my fifties is the boomerang time of like disappointment to, Hey, it's all fine. I offer no resistance to what is. So whatever is being sent to me, I'm just like, okay. Aren't you pissed? They just canceled you. Aren't you pissed? This person just got the raise or the money you wanted. Aren't you pissed? They're dropping you for someone else. Like it is what it is. There's nothing we can do about this and we're going to move on. It's out of my control. So why am I going to put any effort, energy or anything that literally relinquishing control is the best way to navigate life and try to regroup and be positive all the time. I'm going to give you an extreme version. There's a great book that I read called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Love The Four Agreements. Yeah. So in one of those things he talks about, which is a difficult part for people to get, and for me, I'm, I suffer still constantly with it, but it's don't take things personally. Yes. That's one of the four pillars. And he says, I don't even care if someone takes a gun to your mother's head in front of you. That's not personal. And that's a very powerful thing to be able to accept. It is. We're trying to basically realize that we are not these flesh suits of human blood and origin, that we are an energetic being trapped in a physical vessel of a human. Right. And that this physical vessel of a human is here for however long it's going to be on earth. And if you have a quite expansive belief in this, I have an expansive belief. I believe we come back and we come back. And we come back until we figure out all the lessons that we need to learn on this earth plane and walk around this earth being nothing of love and light and of service, you know, regardless of the chaos around you, regardless of like people being, you know, blown up in their faces, like literally being able to hold that energy. This is all designed as such. My vibration walking through the war around me, the pillage, the raping all around me. If I'm holding on to that vibration, it's emitting a frequency into the ether. Yes. So if all of a sudden those people who are like, a, imagine a big brawl at a you know soccer stadium, right? One of the games, person lost, everyone's beating each other up in the stands. And like, you know, you got 10,000 people beating up. All of a sudden there's an awakening. All of a sudden this person's like, I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm going to just hold my, my love for everyone in this room. Another person does that. You know, another person does that. Another person does that. All of a sudden the vibration shifts 
And people who are like pounding people in the face, all of a sudden feel like it feels different in here. What's going on? Look, everyone's calming down. Everyone's like centering themselves. So I know that that's a very annoying and irritating thing to hear when people are like, that's not how the world works. And you can't walk into a bar fight and just, you know, put your hands behind your back and say, you know, this is designed to happen and these kids are going to get into this fight and I can't do anything about it. You know, that's, that's the argument I'm going to hear from anybody who's saying that doesn't work in real life. I've never been in this situation. So I, I'm trying to live this aspirational way of thinking. Do I think I can do it? I don't know. I've never been put in a position where I've had to test this, but I would hope that I would be able to walk into some kind of situation like that and keep my vibration high and hope that the energetic vibration would emit some kind of something. And then also having some form of forgiveness attached to it. So if someone's coming to me and punching me in the face, I hope that I am as well grounded as I think I am, as I'm on the ground at this bar being pummeled in the face, I hope that I have the strength each time he punches me, I forgive you. I would be able to say that every time. I hope that I have that in me. This is what I study. You can physically kill me, bleed me dry, but I still love you and I forgive you because I know that ultimately you are not your ultimate best self. You are trapped in this human body, conditioned by society, your life, yes. the way you were raised, the way the people around you made you feel. Maybe you had a terrible upbringing. Maybe you were abused and beaten nonstop. Maybe you don't know anything else. So how is this this person's ultimate fault? I try to rise above the matrix and be like, okay, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. And if that means I'm going to die in that bar, I also forgive because I'm just like, all right, well, that was my purpose in this life. I did my best. So maybe this person who's pummeled me in the face, now I'm really just going expansive, but like, let's just say the next morning he wakes up in the news and he's having remorse, right? And then somebody filmed me being punched in the face and me just, the videos were going viral that all you hear me saying is, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. Yeah. What if that guy all of a sudden has an epiphany and he's just like, holy shit, I saw what I did. And then he becomes a motivational speaker, <laughs> like a gangbanger who walks around the world and saves millions of kids because he's like, I was abused. I was beaten up. That's why I did it. And now because of this one person I killed, I can change and I can see what he was trying to give me. And now I can therefore change maybe thousands of kids from becoming these attackers. Yes. It's a lofty way of thinking. Is it practical? I don't know. I'd like to think that I would be like that if that situation happened to me. So I do think that ultimately, if we carry a vibration of love and service around, no matter what the situation and try not to judge, that's the biggest thing, right? If someone's beating up someone, you want to judge the attacker, right? Yes. You want to judge the person who's punching your dog in the face. You want to judge the person who's pulling your mom's hair and slapping her. Like you want to be like, hey, don't do that to that person. But it takes another level of consciousness to be like, I forgive you. I get it. You're a fucking mess. And I'm sorry that someone I know or myself had to be the subject of this abuse. But if you can rise above it, there's something so magically transformational. And that is really ultimately where I want to live my being. The question really was, was like, where are these tools? What do you use to kind of get not caught up in all of it? And it ultimately is this habituated way of thinking that comes from constant meditation. It's like, you know, you want to get buff. People will say to me, oh, you're so like disciplined and so controlled. And I'm like, not really more than anyone else. I look at these girls with like six packs and 
butts and guys that are muscular and huge. I'm like, you have so much discipline. You have more discipline than me, but you have it in the wrong areas. You are worried about the aesthetic, the package. So your discipline is high. This needs to look perfect. So don't think that my discipline is higher than yours. It's just you choose to focus on that exterior, mm. making sure that you're eating enough protein, having enough push-ups in between, not eating bad food, staying lean, staying ripped. So I'm doing a gym for myself too, but my gym is my organs, my heart, my spirit, my energy. So I'm doing all those things to feed and fulfill all of those so that when those things come from the external, they can't hurt me because I'm buff inside. Mm, I love that analogy. So for me, like you coming and saying like, you're canceled, you're not good enough, you're not cool, you were a husband, you were something, now you're not, this person's number one, you're number 10, doesn't bother me. There's room for everybody. Wonderful, great. I was number one once, what a wonderful feeling. I'm number 10, my God. So instead of being like, now I'm number 100, I'm like, wow, at least I have a number. So many hairdressers don't even have a number. I can turn anything dark into positive. I love that about you. I will always find something good about it. You can tell me you've slipped from number one to number hundred. You're last on the list. Hey, I'm on the list. I don't care if I'm the last one on the list. I'm still on it. I'm not on the sea of the other million people that aren't on the list. Where did your creative gene come from? You grew up in an Indian immigrant family and you gravitated towards all things fashion. And at the time in your younger school years, you've said that you had this notion that ethnic people weren't tastemakers and it kind of propelled you to pursue what you love and what you still love. But obviously an intensely creative streak existed and was waiting to be uncovered and exposed. What were your very first exact sources of inspiration and did creatives exist anywhere in your family? Definitely not in my family. Even if there were, they were suppressed creatives. So I have no doubt that there wasn't creative people somewhere in my lineage, but because of the background, the rearing of this village life, it's like, yeah, I grew up in a village in India. My brother was three when we came. We were like very, very Indian village mentality. So the thing was like, make enough money to have food, get respect in the community. So that made doctor, lawyer, engineer certainly was not going to be an artist. And maybe there was other people in my family, but they were never allowed to explore that and certainly wasn't encouraged to explore that. So for me, the tastemaker thing was a real sign that I felt when I was young. I'm like, it just really puzzled me. I didn't understand. Mm. So my naivete really served me well in my life. Me being kind of aloof and foolish to like what the real world was gave me so much hope that, well, it doesn't say that it's not this. So why couldn't it be this? I always lived in hope. I always saw the glasses half full. Someone could say to me, like when we were 16, I'm like, Dude, there's no Indian anybody doing the stuff. These are all European people. They're Paris, London, Milan, right. America. Do you see people from like India being on these pages? I'm like, not even models at the time. You know what I mean? At the time. Right. So it was really an interesting time. So I kind of thought, well, yeah, but there's got to be a first for everything. And why not me? Yeah. I don't know why the universe gave this kind of why not me? Like you can have these things. I had nothing that provided any kind of right where did it come from yes like your parents are behind you your community is behind you everyone told me the opposite yeah so if anything I'm just like well I just kind of scratch my head and say, well why not why not me I'd be good at this I'm sure I'd be good at this I innately look at things and I kind of get them I was young looking at magazines for the most part that was really what it is ultimately I would love when there was a long checkout line at the grocery because all the magazines were right at the front and my mom wouldn't let me buy them. But depending on how long the line was, I could really sift through a lot of it. 
So while she was there in line, I'd always just be like milling in the magazines, like just take, please, hopefully that there's a long line and I can get through all of Vogue while I'm sitting here, you know? Oh, I love that story. My mom would never let me buy magazines, but what she would do is she would go to the doctor's offices and stuff like that. She could tell the months, the issues were three months old. She's like, listen, these are a couple of months old and I see you have March and April there. Can I take January and February? My son loves And them. she swiped them for you. Oh, that's so sweet. So she'd bring them home and then I'd be able to cut the pages because I wouldn't own it, but at least I can now rip them and put them on the wall. So I had all the supermodel collage on the wall of like Cindy and all that kind of stuff. So it was super cool. And that's kind of where the bug started was at a young age, just looking through magazines and I was inspired and I thought, why not me? So Harry, to excel at what you do requires a deep understanding of and the ability to get along with all sorts of people and personalities. And in school, back to school time, you have said that you tended to be Switzerland and the kind of person that was friends with everyone, bridging the gaps between groups and cliques. I can relate. I was the same person. Do you think that that way of learning to move through school friendships and relationships primed and prepared you to be so great at achieving ideal connection with the people you've worked with over the years? It's sort of helping you in turn be successful, whether working as a casting director in your life, which we're going to talk more about, or on set, or the high profile people whose hair you do, that must have prepared you and served you. In more ways than I can imagine, like all of our rearing happens so young. The habits we create at a young age really do carry with us. So I'm so grateful that I had this insight as a young person in school to being like, hey, don't pick sides for anything. Don't judge anyone. There is no good group, bad group, popular group, bad group. Like, you know what I mean? Be neutral, be nice to everyone. And when they talk bad about another group or another section of people in the school or whatever, don't engage, don't engage, walk away, say something nice about the other side and walk away. You were open to being friends with all sorts of people. And in turn, you learn so much about different types of people rather than always. The respect level for different types of people was so big because I understood like once I kind of hung out with like rough kids and I saw their home, I'm like, oh, I get it. These kids, like I see how their parents are with them. I'm like, no wonder they're so badass at school. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like their dad's mean as hell. Like, you know what I mean? Like and I got to witness that. And then you saw like other kids who were like the bougie kids who had like the nice cars and the, you know, cabriolet and like came into school. Oh my, like, the cabriolet was the car at the time. That's so <laughs> we're funny. We're the same age. So yes, the old we are, we are. Same. That's so funny. That's <laughs> the references funny. are the same, but you know, you saw them pulling up to school and they had different upbringings. So like the fact that I was like Mr. Neutral in school, like, you know, hang out with the rough kids, the rock and rollers, the hipsters, the cool people. I just knew life would be better if everyone just got along. Mm. And I knew that if I could be the neutral person in the school, I mean, I ran for student council as well. So I was like the vice president in school. So I was definitely an active member of school and someone who wanted to constantly bring people together. And what ended up happening is on our graduation night, it happened. And I was the, the catalyst of that night. I had brought all the cliques of graduation community together on the dance floor. Oh, I love that. I graduated in 1990 in Vogue. Madonna was the song. So I, unbeknownst to anybody in my school, literally started voguing on the dance floor. And like everyone just could not believe it. Well, let's just be clear. I do not know how to vogue the way you see people vogue on like proper like pose and stuff like that. But my version of an 18 year old or 17 year old kid doing like whatever that was. They were like, look at him. Yeah. And I was just ballsy. Like I created a circle. I was by myself 
I could see all like the jock dudes trying to like do stuff and like, you know, the nerds doing stuff like. Oh my God, it's like a scene from a, a movie. It's Can't Buy Me Love, African Anita Dance. It's Can't Buy Me Love. When you said Cabriolet, all I could think of was Camp. <laughs> I know. And then the African Anita Dance. And then everyone's doing it. Right. And then. <laughs> but that's what ended up happening. It was that kind of a moment. And then after it was done, just everyone being like, dude, you're the coolest. You're the greatest kid in here. Thanks for bringing them together. Blah, blah, blah. So it was just a really nice feeling of that. So I knew at a young age that that was going to serve me in anything I did. It just solidified my way of thinking mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. also my never ending non-race to get somewhere. Mm, yes. Society puts such a timeline on human beings to achieve certain things by certain days and ages and markers. And if you don't have that, all of a sudden you're like considered not successful or not. You didn't get it together. You didn't get married when you were supposed to. You didn't have the baby when you were supposed to. You didn't have the career when you were supposed to. You didn't buy the property when you were supposed to. And so we're all burdened with these things of what society is telling us. Oh, at 40, I should have this. At 35, I should have this. At 45, I should have this. And it's like, says who? I removed all of that from my thinking that there was timelines on anything. Why couldn't I still find my dream partner at 60? Like, I don't have a limit of like, oh, I'm too old now to find that. Like, I don't think like that. Right. I'm like, it'll come when it's supposed to come. And as long as I'm vibrating at the right frequency, the universe will keep giving me things that are on that same frequency. You know, you have an openness and flexibility that you've stuck to over the years. You're describing it now that I would say is for sure one of your greatest strengths, the ability to pivot, the ability to see the value in an opportunity that you never maybe considered in building one's career. Just as you're saying, I think a lot of people underestimate how far that line of thinking can take you and how much positive growth it can generate. What have been the hugest times in your career when you've implemented that way of thinking to great success? Not without a rocky road, of course, but ultimately achieving what was great. I think I've had many, 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 many examples of how this way of thinking has served me in many, many ways. Some of them I'd like to just keep sacred just because I can't even believe they happened. You know what I mean? I understand that. Wow. How did this happen to me? Like I prayed for this and like, my God, it's just happened, you know, like, yeah, I do believe intentional thinking can bring you a lot and ultimately what your end goal is makes a difference. So my goal is never for me personally. My goal is for the collective planet. So like mine is just a contribution to like a giant orange and I'm a slice in the orange. My job is to keep the orange all fresh because if I have a rotten piece, it will spread to the other pieces and make the whole orange bad. Yeah. My job is to keep myself clean and juicy and wonderful and full of like no toxic energy. The universe does not respond to what you are saying. It is responding to what you're thinking and feeling. You can walk around saying, I'm great. I'm good. I'm so kind. I love people. You're wonderful, but you don't feel it. Mm. You're a fraud. Mm. You're walking around saying all these things, but ultimately you're not really vibrating at that frequency. You're doing it because you think that's the right way to think. Mm -hmm. And if I say this, then maybe people will respect me for thinking like this, but your actions speak a lot louder than your words do. How you behave, how you think, how you emote, how your feelings are vibrating all day long. Are you sad? Are you happy? Are you grateful? What is going on in your thinking? Because whatever you're doing is manifesting outside. So whatever you're feeling, something is going to happen out here in the ether from what's going on inside. 
I'm making shit up just to give an example. Like, let's say I, I help a woman on the street, her whole food bag is wet and the bottom breaks and it's all coming through. And I see her and I, you know, stop and I'm like, oh, I have a bag in my back, an extra one here. I'll help you put it. I give it. So I give it to her. She walks away. Now, I don't make the connection because I've done a little bit of good juju just, you know, out there. But now I've gone to the bank to go stand in line and the line's really long. And all of a sudden, I'm like, crap, I'm not sure I have enough time for this bank because I have to be at my meeting at X o'clock. Then all of a sudden, two other operators come into the room and all of a sudden the line's gone. So for me, I can look at that bank opening as a residual effect to what I just did on the street. Mm. So that woman has nothing to do with my karmic, but the universe is keeping score. The earth is watching, you know? So I'm imagining this. I'm not saying this is happening, but in my mind, I have this game that I'm like, listen, the universe just saw what I did. If it wants to serve me here and create this opening so I can deposit the check and get to my work on time, it'll do that. And if it doesn't, that's okay too. And so as this way happens, now I just gave you an example of a woman on the street and then it coming back to me at a bank, which has no connection at all. But I want you to think that this is how it's worked in my career and in my life as well. So anything that I've given externally out to people with no intention of somehow serving me solely to serve others with the intention that the universe knows like, oh no, he's not trying to build his ego here. He's literally trying to let them have it. You know what I mean? Like have the power, have the success, build the collective consciousness of the planet. That is my dream is to like to be of service to the collective if we all have this thinking then we can pretty much have a different existence on the planet so if i'm doing anything like that throughout the day in any arena of my life i know karmically it's being put into a bank a karmic bank and that will be shown to me as needed because this is the problem i feel with society is like I do good things. I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. I help people on the street. God damn it. I recycle. I do all these nice things. Why the fuck is things are not happening to me? Why the fuck am I not pregnant? Why the fuck am I not married? Why the fuck if I don't own a house? Why the fuck did I not get the cover? Why the fuck am I not a millionaire? That is a shift in energy. So if you feel like you deserve, you are operating from, I deserve this. I have done this. So give it to me. The universe does not respond to that. The universe can only respond to I'm giving because I want nothing in return. Mm -hmm. I want to be of service. Mm. And when the universe can feel that it will give you opportunities and things that will fall right into your lap when you least expect them, because it knows where your intention is coming from. And that magic has kept me alive in this industry for almost 30 years. I wake up every day. Wow. The phone rang again for me. I am never not blown away that they're like, my agent's like, they're calling with an option. I'm like, really? That's amazing. I'm not available, but I can't even believe they're still asking. That's awesome. So I walk around with that feeling constantly of gratitude, like, holy crap. Even if the phone never rang again and I never did another red carpet, another cover, another private plane, nothing. If it was over today, like these wrists, I'd break. Don't say that. <laughs> I would be grateful. I would say, wow, what a long run I've had. I would look back in fondness, like, oh my gosh, I was able to do so many things, meet so many people, touch so many lives, was able to have a brand, like you name it. I would not go to like, oh, woe is me. It's just not where my head goes. Yeah. Sometimes the head scratcher, like, fuck, that sucks. 
Right. And there's a difference between that. Yeah. Like it's not like I'm not immune from bad things happening. I just don't let them rest on me. You've also said your sense of humility from failing has been a greatest strength. What do you consider to be any fails in your life? Oh my gosh. What a great friggin' question. Because you know what? In retrospect, none of it. Right. At the time when I was 20 and not achieving things or 21 or 22 or 23, 22, all of my twenties really, which I would at that time consider disappointment. I would only count now as like, Oh, just stepping stones. Yes. I would remove that verbiage. But the truth is when I was that age, yes, it was disappointment to me because I thought, well, I should have achieved this by now. Yes. I'm talented. I should be successful. Yes. I'm cute and charming. Something should happen to me. (laughs) This entitlement thing that I had at a young age, you know, like, well, why not? And then every person would just keep walking up to me like, no, you're not good enough. You're not this enough. You're not that enough. Why would it happen to you? I'm like, I don't know. I don't buy it. You know what I mean? This unwavering faith in myself. I'm like, hmm. I know what you're saying. And I know there's no Indian people doing this. And yes, I can't cornrow. Yes, I I can't do that either. But something's telling me I still can do this. I don't know what I need to do. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'm going to take away the timeline of that. I need to be famous by 23 or 24, 25, 26, whenever I was thinking I should be. Once I removed that, life became easier. I wasn't even successful. Successful meaning like recognized publicly. People say, when did you know you were successful? I have two versions of success. Success in the public eye means you've been published in a way that changed the trajectory of your career. I will call that my Vogue article in 2002 as being like the new guy to look out for. But ultimately, success is not measured like that to me. Success to me is I don't care about Vogue, my job, my anything. The word success means to me to wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and be proud of the choices you've made Mm. through everything you've done in your life. Never feeling bad that I did this, that, and the other. And if you did, ask for absolution, ask for forgiveness, say it to the ether. You don't even need to say it to Joe Schmo in sixth grade that you're like, I didn't mean to, you know, shave your head in the bathroom. You know what I mean? (laughs) Say it to him now, Joe Schmo. I'm sorry. In sixth grade, I shaved your head. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't mean to. It was meant to serve my ego. And I realized it was wrong. That's absolution. You have now just said it into the ether. It will vibrate and find its way to Joe Schmo. It will. Yeah. That way has really, I think, served me. And I never feel disappointed in the success department because I have no level of what the public thinks is success. Hmm. It's not a material word for me. In the beginning, you broke into the hair salon world in Canada. I think you were around age 18, right? And then you made your way to Miami in the early 90s. Correct. And there was a lot of fashion shoots happening there. It was kind of where it was at. You told a story about needing to create a portfolio when you were trying to make that segue from salon to freelance stylist. And it really reminded me of my own story, probably around the same time, just out of college, maybe, where I was desperately trying to get this like corporate job at Urban Outfitters to be like a buy or whatever it was. And and I remember they were like, well, we need a portfolio from you. And I was just laughing because I was like, I took my friends. We went to Central Park. (laughs) You did the same thing. I dressed them in clothes. I did. Like, I can make a portfolio. Give me a minute. They actually called me in for the interview. But it it was so funny hearing you talk about that. And I just was wondering, like, what was it like for you in the 90s in Miami? What were you into? What were you doing? What were you inspired by? Tell us about Miami at the time. Miami in the early 90s, 1991. I was in there and I moved in 1990, just to be clear. So like I moved like the summer of 1990, right after high school. That's early. So I was only 17, actually, not 18. My birthday was in December. 
dates are a bit vague, but it was really literally right after high school. So very much thrown right into the deep end. At the time, it was the Saint-Tropez of America. It was chic. You know what I mean? Like Gianni Versace was building a house there. He was looking, he hadn't even bought the mansion yet, but he was constantly there looking at properties. So he was around. All the magazines were shooting their Vogue, Galore. You know, I saw Pauli Mellon walking around the streets on Ocean Drive. So I knew all the players that were there from afar. They didn't know me, but I knew who they were. So it was definitely a, a cool, cool place. It was definitely high fashion. And I was all over it. And it was still the 90s. So it was still Glamazon Central. The dark kind of CK1 shit didn't happen yet. That's right. Grunge didn't quite hit yet. So it was still like big hair, lashes, you know, like the whole night yard. George Michael video. Yeah, it was awesome. It was just full on drama. You know what I mean? Like lots of hair, lots of makeup. It was just fantastical on every level. And that was super, super cool and super, super fun me and I did learn a ton. I made my own portfolio, which was rejected by everyone in Miami, of course, because they're like, this is not a portfolio. This is you taking snapshots of girls with updos. Yeah, right. This is not a portfolio. And I'm like, sorry, well, that's what I have. Anyways, that being said, it was, you know, an arduous, tough ride, but I did end up assisting and I did eventually make my way slowly, but surely from town to town to town to eventually get to New York until I could, you know, again, be met with the same rejection I was met in Miami. And ultimately, I just never gave up. I just thought, you know what? I enjoy this process. And even if I never achieved it, I enjoyed all the stages that went with it. A lot of people who don't want to start at the bottom, like you're just like, I don't want to be there. I want to be here. So they're constantly looking here, waiting for this, but not enjoying any of the stages that are actually super fun along the way that you're going to look back when you're here and laugh at those moments. You're like, oh my God, remember when? Yeah. But you were just too busy being unhappy in that space to remember how precious it was that we were down to the last dollar and all we had was the baguette and we split the baguette in half and found a roach on the street and smoked the joint, like whatever, you know, whatever your little stories are going to be from you suffering in New York to try to get your dreams. Don't ever look back at them and be like, God, that sucked because it was beautiful. I want to talk to you a little bit about this idea of tear sheets and portfolio versus where we are now. Did you say that your first magazine shoot on set was with Patrick DeMarchelier? Is, is that right? Yes. And I finally, yeah, it was Harper's Bazaar, Patrick DeMarchelier. You know, it, it's funny because I almost called Story and Rain Tear Sheet. And the ultimate goal for people like you and I was like getting your first tear sheet. Yes. And of course, the industry is so different now. It's like a not even the same thing at all. No, it's like rest in peace, the physical portfolio. Yeah. You stamped your name on it. You meticulously gathered the tear sheets. You sent it out. There was a process for sending it out. And Instagram has now replaced the portfolio. Correct. And your Instagram account is a great one. It's a popular one. You've also said it's a polarizing one. What are your thoughts on how top professionals like you display their work these days on social media? Truly on Instagram is really what it is. It's a very interesting thing you bring up. And it's a double-edged sword. It's leveled the playing field for artists around the planet. That is what's great, first of all about Instagram. Because if you wanted to do, let's say what I do for a living, and you're wondering, gosh, how would I ever be able to achieve that? I'm in a small town in the middle of nowhere. I can't afford to do what Harry did and like, you know, go live on the sofa in Miami and do all these kind of things. Mm -hmm. Instagram is now your everything. It is your college. It is your university. You can curate your best work the way you want to do it. And you no longer need a specific person to approve you and say that you are good or bad. The public will decide. So in my arena, it didn't matter what the public thought. If an agent or a fashion editor 
did not see high quality work from your pictures, you're done. They ultimately were the gatekeepers. They decided who was worthy of coming on the set and who was not worthy of coming on the set based on your aesthetic, how you've chosen to create hairstyles, the looks, all that kind of stuff. What stories you choose to keep in the portfolio, which aren't there. Exactly. Do you keep it small and tight? I remember that was a thing too, like taking things out of the portfolio, moving new things in. Yeah. And not trying to overkill them with, I work every day. They're like, we don't care if you work every day. We just want to see the best of the best. What this has done now is level the playing field. So all of a sudden someone in bumfuck wherever America or the world can build their own fan base and they can come to the table with like, I have a million followers that say that I know what I'm doing. I know I don't have an agent and I don't have a manager and I've never done a red carpet, but let me tell you, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. It's about the people speak, not about the subjectiveness. Exactly. So in many ways, it's been wonderful to level the playing field. Now, all of a sudden, people who have talent have a way to get in through their following because now it's such a numbers game. It's more about commerce, less about art. Yeah. Being hired on their reach. Magazines, movie production houses, novelists, authors want the reach to go as far as possible through social. So they want the teams that they can hire, the actresses, the whoever who got the biggest following, not who's the right person for this part. Maybe the other person is a little less right, but has 6 million followers. And the producer's like, you know what? She's a little less right, but her is more important to the movie than the other one is. Yeah, you have such great insight into that. So we're always choosing commerce over art. And this goes right down to the big fashion brands. They may think a new girl is amazing for Prada, LVMH, but they're like, we need someone with 30 million followers. Right. We need a big girl to be in this campaign. Otherwise it's useless to us or an influencer or something. So it is a whole nother world. It's a very commerce based industry. There, of course, will always be art. That is, but what we're seeing is the drive is no longer coming from art. The drive is coming from commerce because it's become a very survival of the fittest job. You know what I mean? We don't make the money we used to make. It's a very saturated, watered-down business, meaning for every editor, magazine, podcaster, blogger, there's 600 of us doing this, all trying to get another claw in the proverbial pie mm-hmm. so that we can like make a living and pay our rent and do what we love. And there will always be art. Don't get me wrong. There'll always be high fashion. There'll always be art, but it's becoming smaller and smaller. And that is a difficult thing to navigate, being that that is what drew me into this world in the first place. Speaking of Instagram... You have a really wonderful, eclectic Instagram account. And you said that like the feedback on your account has been polarizing. There's two responses to what you post, which I think obviously speaks to your authenticity. Based on what is happening and the energetic vibrations we can feel collectively on the planet, everything is incredibly heightened right now. It is. That's true. I have geared back tremendously on sharing too much insight, too much of a concept of thinking. Smart. Because I can feel that people are very heated and upset and angry. And I I have no intention to rattle anyone's feathers. I'm just trying to introduce a new thought process that may be of service to you. Right. Now, if you're not in a good place, what I am introducing to you may come back as being like, this is fucked up. I don't want to think like this. I don't like this idea. I can feel that that's in the ether right now. I've just stepped back and kept everything very, very light, not really chiming in on what's really happening in the world. And also, I don't know how that's of service either. Mm. I always wonder, how is that of service when 
everyone posts about what's going on. And then two slides later, it's them in a bikini. I just don't know if the message is quite clear. Like, yes, I care, but also bizarre. You know what I mean? Like it's bizarre. I'm just like, okay, Insta story, Insta story, Insta story. But then the argument there would be the same thing. This is why I have no fixed beliefs, by the way, on anything, because the argument could be like, well, yeah, I am this multifaceted person. I do care about what's going on out there, but I do care about my fitness and wellness. And I do care about the attention I'm getting from men or whatever like it is, or like, or I do want to sell my clothes. So yes, you're going to see me in a bikini in the morning, and then you're going to see me care about the afternoon. And so who am I to say, that's not how you share love? Who gives me the authority to tell them like, you can't do that. You either have to talk solely about what's going on in the world, or you solely stick with your bikinis and your exercise regime. We as a society are so quick to judge everyone on everything they do. And we have this kind of hive mentality that we've created where the cancel culture is out of control. Everything's out of control. Like, you know what I mean? It's like everyone just kind of hives together. They're like, attack, attack. Yeah, it's a world of judgment right now. World of judgment. Everyone has the right to believe what they want to believe. There is no right or wrong in anything. I honestly think that whatever you believe is fine with me. I have no judgment against what you believe and think. But we've got to learn to be easier on each other. I see it as a community. I see the hate that, not on my page, but I see other pages. Like, you know, people will post something thought-provoking. And it almost makes me applaud them. I'd be like, hey, that took balls to post that. Here's, you know, here's some applause for not even having an opinion, but creating space to think outside of the box that we're living in. And I see people attack underneath. And I'm just like, guys, I almost want to go and defend him, but I know that then I'm now in the matrix. If I go underneath and start saying, hey, I don't think that's what this person was trying to say. What he's trying to say, there is other ways of thinking and maybe we should think about this. But then I now come down to that vibration of justification. Mm. Now I'm feeling my ego is hurt. I'm not even involved in this, by the way. This is a stranger Mm -hmm. and another stranger that I don't know. And I'm trying to protect a stranger I don't know from a stranger that I don't know either. Mm. So in order for me to feel that I'm being of service, I have to lower my vibration, counteract with this stranger I don't know said about this stranger that I'm following and try to get into their world. So what is that really doing ultimately? I've now created an argument with someone who does not believe what this person's saying. So now I've created a conflict. So now I'm going to get conflict back from him or her saying like, dude, just stick to hair and your tools. No one gives a shit about your like lofty ideas about the world. You know what I mean? So I realized there's no power in me doing that. Because now I have to now justify going down to that level and now try to prove my point when I can just be ignore it, put lots of love and light on this situation and walk away from it. Back to magazines for a moment. Many of the creatives I talk to on the podcast all have this like collective love for magazines. We've been talking about magazines and how that really sparked a lot of your career path and your creativity. I was no exception. I mean, I covered my wall behind my bed with magazines. I collaged magazines and covered photo albums with them. I want to know what exactly were the spreads that were resonating with you in the beginning? Obviously all the American magazines. So at this point there was magazines that I was reading that I don't even think exist today, like Taxi magazine. T-A-X-Y, Cleo, C-L-E-E-O. They were like, these are like Australia. Taxi was from like a different country, maybe even Canada. Yeah. And I would always go to the European bookshelves to look at the collectionies. Oh, me too. The big monster books that were like $80. And I'd always say to them, hey, if you guys are ever getting rid of your 
old books, you know, I'll buy them for less or whatever. And so, and I remember whenever it was like birthdays or Christmas, I'd always say to friends, like everyone pitch in and get me like a fashion book. Do you think that the things that you were looking at then still inform your aesthetic today? No, you can have a point of view about it, but fashion is ever changing constantly. What I would love 10 years ago, I don't love now. What I might love in the future, I may not ever love again. It's always changing. It's always different. It's like, you know, sometimes you love a turtleneck, like, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you love a top knot, sometimes you want it down. Yeah. It is just what it is. It all has a home and a place. And it's just a matter of whatever you're feeling at that given time and moment that fuels you to create something based on what you're feeling at that moment. Your serious study and knowledge of magazines, talk about something that served you well, also served you well in that risky moment when you were interning at KCD. Yes. For those of you that don't know, KCD is one of the top fashion PR and production houses. You interrupted a meeting to correct somebody who was explaining the details of a spread involving Linda Evangelista. Correct. (laughs) Yeah, and you described a climate and an atmosphere in fashion at the time when I heard you tell that story. There was a hierarchy and there was a way of behaving as an assistant, spoke only when spoken to, that I would say no longer exists. And while that all sounds very negative and very Devil Wears Prada, as we like to say, people like Harry and I literally live the real version of that. Yeah, and I respected it. I got it. My question for you is that it also taught us how to continue to be the observers that we innately are. It taught us how to read a room. It taught us how to be good at our jobs. Yes, so true. I think the youth of today, when it comes to my assistants and stuff like that, this is something that I have to teach them. Yes. When is the right time to crack the joke? When is the right time to speak up? you got to learn to read a room. First of all, I always like to walk into a room and create what I like to create as my intention for the day. So I'm definitely going to be the person who's going to walk in the set and say hi to every single solitary person. I'm going to create a vibe. As soon as I walk in, hi, everybody. I'm Harry. How are you? What's your name? Ah, cool. I like your shoes. Like anything I can do to create the first 10 minutes of the day as, oh, this is going to be a nice afternoon. Everyone seems very friendly and nice and like, you know, as opposed to a lot of times you walk into a set and people are whatever, they carry their own world in with them, you know, like they've had a rough morning or whatever, and they're tired or their agent just called them on the way and said, you know, your rate's less than what you thought it was. But there's a million reasons why people come into a job with whatever in their head. And they're just there to kind of like set up and they have no interest in connecting with anyone around them because they're just like, I-, I have a lot going on. Like, what are we doing today? You know what I mean? Like, what's the model? And they're just business, you know, like what's, what are we doing here? Okay. We're doing cornrows. That's great. Let's do it. You know? So that's great. And that's an important part of the job. Actually, it's your main part of the job. But what if you could bring more to the table than your skill? What if you can energetically change your room so that it's a lighter day? It's a funnier day. We crack jokes. I've been on set with you and that's exactly what it was. You know, you create this atmosphere where people are just like, this is a really fun day. And this is really nice. And no one's stressed. And if there's a problem, we know how to like not yell at each other through it. Like we can get through this. And then also learning how to navigate. Let's say I'm working with a newer makeup artist, right? So I have 30 years under my belt. This person maybe has a year, but they're good. And that's why they're there. But they haven't really dealt with the politics of what it's like to be rejected on a job being like, this isn't working for us. Can you take it back? And maybe that's their first time experiencing that. And for me, I've been hundreds of times because 90%, it's always the hair that needs to move or change. It's never the makeup because hair moves. So it can look good in the chair and the girl goes like this. You're like, now it doesn't look good. So we can't do the whole shoot with her head up like this. So what else can we do? That is such a great piece of nuance. That is exactly right. 
Yeah, because hair moves, makeup doesn't. So hair gets the brunt of every shoot. You know what I mean? The makeup rarely, unless it's a lip thing. You know what I mean? Like, can we make the lip punchier? Can we make the eye punchier? But hair is just like, it's not working. We don't know what to tell you. You know what I mean? It's like, not sure how to navigate through this. So anyways, my experience would be this. Let's say a new makeup artist, I'm working with her, third year spell, we go to the set, take the first picture. I can hear like you and maybe the photographer like huddling around the screen and like we're kind of standing back not sure when the glam should come up to this monitor and look at it but I can tell that something's not working and I'm thinking no big deal like whatever we can change it that's what we do we're hair and makeup people we change it but to that makeup artist they're taking it internally as I'm not good I'm a fraud they're now seeing that I'm not capable of being here and I'm like no, nah, get that out of your head. That's not what's going on here. It is a collective thing. We all want a good image. Something is missing. We think it could be the makeup. Once you fix that makeup, maybe you need to darken it, more mascara, more lash shadow. Let go of your, I can't do this. I'm not here. Shake it out of you. And if you can make them feel empowered again and not little, right? Because an editor can come back to a makeup artist and make them feel this big. Even if in her mind, she's like, this is shit. It looks so bad on the monitor. Like her tan is blotchy. I'm making shit up. Her hair is flat. I don't know. Whatever it is, the problem, if you deliver it in a way that it can empower the artist to get it right, you're going to be in a much better situation than coming there, barking at them and throwing your hands up and being like, give me an expert, please. Right. And then also let's not forget about what happens in collaboration. I mean, you're kind of describing it that we're collaborating to create an image. Something's missing. We're going to try this. Maybe then we're going to try that. Oh, now throw a jacket over her shoulder. That's how magic happens. You have to just keep moving with it, not take everything so personally. Yes. Like it's a direct attack to you. It's not. It's a collective picture. One aspect of this picture is not working. We'd like you to work on that. I want to talk about the salon. So eventually when, you know, we talked about the fact that you transitioned from Miami to New York in pursuit of wanting to work in fashion and you ended up on Madison Avenue at the illustrious Peter Coppola salon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with your out of the box thinking, that's where you ended up meeting somebody who would then connect you with that job at KCD. So I just want to stop for a moment okay. and talk about that very special era in hair salons in New York at the time. I needed to be at every single one of them. Yeah. It was Bruno Desange. It was Peter Coppola. I used to go when you were there, I'm sure. I mean, like these were all the top places for Fakai. I mean, like these were all the big, big places. And at the time, downtown wasn't flushed out the way it is now. So if you wanted good hair, you had to go uptown. You got funky downtown. You got like cool East Village haircuts. But if you wanted like a good blowout, good color, you went uptown. You did not go to a Lower East Side or East Village or West Village shop. You went straight to Madison Avenue. That's where everyone was. That's where the elite movers, shakers were, the designers, the stylists, everybody was up there. So when I was working there, it was really an incredible serendipitous opportunity where I just just kind of relented the fact that I would not be in fashion. I'd kind of come to the point, I'm like, listen, it's okay. I guess I'm not going to be around fashion because I've given it a lot of tries. It's not really panning out the way I want. Hey, there's nothing wrong with being a salon hairdresser. I will go back into the salon world. I love it anyways. Went into the salon world. I was an assistant there. And I was washing hair and blow drying hair for certain people. And this one woman, as we mentioned earlier, was the president of KCD. And she was a regular client who came in like clockwork and all the assistants flocked to her because she was incredibly generous. She was a very, very big tipper. So everyone would run every week for her rotation to be like, I want to blow dry her. I want to blow dry her. And ultimately I 
wanted to blow dry her, not for the tip, because she would have these binders in her lap that said like, you know, Prada, Marc Jacobs, Louis Vuitton, Gucci. I'm like, wow, what does this woman do that she has, you know, tentacles to all these big things? And she told me she's a fashion producer. I didn't really know what that meant. She explained it to me. And then a light went off. I'm like, wow, I would do that job. Forget hairdressing. If I could be back in fashion being a producer, which I just understood was a job. I didn't even think of that as being a career. Like, I'm like, that's a job. Like, you know, they're like, yeah, we produce shows, lighting, stage, sound, hair, makeup. I'm like, oh, just everything exploded when she told me. All year long, we're doing this. I wanted to do, I'm like this, I forget salon work. I want to do this now. So then I had to break my way into her. And every single time she'd come every week, all the assistants would fight for her because it'd be a rotation of like, you get her this week, then you get the next week. But I was like, no, it has to be me every week. So I'm like, I will give you the tip. So when it comes to the desk, I will give it to you, but let me have FaceTime with her each time. Oh my gosh. I love this part of the story. So I got the FaceTime. I watched her blur out after her color. And then she would tip me and I would just give the tip to whoever was next to rotation just to get in her ear and befriend her. Finally drove her nuts enough to the point where she's like, fine, like, here's my number, get started. And that's kind of like back to the story of where you already know. And it's a great story. At KCD, you started off, I believe, interning, and then you ended up, you went straight to being a casting director, right? Junior casting director, and then for one season, and then I went from assisting to actually getting my first show six months later. So it went incredibly fast. Well, you eventually worked with Marc Jacobs when Marc Jacobs was designing for Louis Vuitton. Yeah. I worked at Interview Magazine at the time and Interview and KCD had a very close relationship. And the way I've heard you describe KCD is a lot like what Interview was like at the time. Prada was walking in and out and the Versace's were always there. Yeah. In terms of Mark, I remember we actually did a story on his first collection, I believe, for Vuitton and his primary collection. I was in charge of collecting sketches. I still have his sketches framed here today. What is it like to work with Mark Jacobs? My gosh, the man is a mad genius. Give us a story or a moment, because I can only imagine. Is inspired by literally anything. And he is definitely someone who knows what he wants. He does not vacillate. He knows exactly what he wants when it comes to it. And when it came to casting and stuff like that, he really loved to challenge his team to make sure he had the best of the best. So he would love flipping through random magazines and land on a picture and stick his finger on the like, who's that? And I'd be like, so-and-so is from, you know, Karen Agency in Paris, five foot nine. <laughs> like a Karen Agency, yeah. I just had to know everyone. He's just like, do you know who this is? Do you know who this is? Do you know who this is? I'm like, yep, 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 yep. So he loved to make sure his team was on board with everything like that. He was definitely great to his team that worked for him he worked long 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 hours all the time and they cared for their staff when they worked for them so like we were taken care of very well while we worked these insane hours sometimes you'd have 14 16 18 hour shifts with him he wanted anyone to go home because he's like i'm not going home so i want everyone to be here with me you know and he just wanted the moral support system and then what they would do they'd be so good to the staff that they'd always order like really nice food or like massages or like just things to take care of the people that were taking care of him. I love that. Like him and Robert, his partner, were very, very generous to the people that worked around them. And it really made for a really beautiful experience to be part of that team for a long time. Listen, there's always chaos, but that was not a bad thing because the chaos turned out to be very, very exciting 
to be around. And you're experiencing genius. I'm experiencing genius. I, I, there's so many shows that I've seen where I'm backstage and the show's just about to start. We're talking like music is going and Mark has an idea. I remember one show where Devin Aoki opened the show The music started and he wouldn't let her get out because he decided he wanted to cut the crinoline on her dress shorter. Like last second. And I'm like, this was not planned. The music has started. I'm like, she's got to get out there now. And he's having a creative moment. So it was super cool to witness that kind of stuff. Like him just being on his hands and knees and tying the shoe differently than what he had planned it to be or tying something around the waist that wasn't supposed to be there or whatever. You know what I mean? So it was super cool to be around someone at that level and just see how they operate, see what gets their creative juices flowing. And also realizing that everything is creative and everything is possible and everything is, it can come from anywhere. He, he can get inspired by a friggin' ham sandwich. That's beautiful. <laughs> it really is. He's just a very inspired person. As a casting director, you were friends with many models, including Giselle, and you started doing their hair in the downtime between show seasons. This kind of marked the beginning of another career transition that would happen for you. One back to hair where we find you now. And you've worked with everyone from models to, like you said, politicians, entertainers, celebrities. Can you just name a handful for the sake of this conversation? Well, I'll do it in another way. Uh, I'll say that because I hate to use the word client because I don't feel like any person is my client. But I have been enough to literally touch the heads of half of the movers and shakers in Hollywood at least once time these celebrities i'm talking everyone from jennifer aniston reese witherspoon uh hillary swank to rose Byrne to kate bosworth to kalina christensen to cindy crawford to giselle to irina shake to uh, queens and kings in different countries to like nascar drivers everyone has filtered through my chair at one point mm-hmm. i know a lot of hairdressers like to use the word client my client giselle my client this my client arena yes i work with them but i don't have ownership over these people these people work with multiple hairdressers all year long i have friendships with these people i have another word for you that i want to ask you about okay are you someone that has muses? What are your thoughts on the muse, the artist and muse relationship? As an artist, you've had some very important close relationships, like we're describing, uh, with the world's most familiar faces. For sure, for sure, there can be muses, and no better muse has been for me than my current, which is Arena Shake, only because her beauty lends itself to the largest array of hair transformations. They all work on her. And let's say Giselle, it doesn't all work on. You can't give Giselle a pixie haircut and think it looks awesome. Right. You give Irina a geometric sharp bob and it's amazing. You can give her bangs and it's amazing. You can do a 70s shag. It's amazing. These things are not as ideal on every person. So for me, she is a blank canvas. Everything works on her everything. So there's no look that in my mind thinking, oh, that's not going to work. And I've done everything on her. Not only is she a current muse, but I can see why she's so relevant in fashion. Because ultimately we are in a moment where society-wise, not just fashion, but like people alter their face to look a certain way. You know, we have filters on Instagram. Pillars are like going to the dentist now, getting a tweak here or there you know, plumping up a lip, lifting up an eye, whatever. So all of a sudden when you have Irina, she reminds you what a supermodel is. You know, she reminds you that these girls need nothing. 
they walk in just the way they are. And they're like, this girl needs no makeup, no nothing. That's why she's always scraped back in a bun. They just, she just walks in there like, don't touch her. It's because she has that look, you know, 5'10", perfect face, perfect skin, untethered face. Like nothing has been altered. That's exactly, you look at her baby picture, she looks like that. There's a reason I think so many of fashion people are drawn to her because of that. Yeah. Doing Giselle's famous, gorgeous ombre hair led to more milestones and advancement in your career. The hair that you were so often doing in your apartment for these models at the time caught the eye of Amy Astley. That was the article that you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. She was then the beauty director of Vogue. And she did this huge article that you ended up really becoming the star of. And you were positioned as kind of really cool because you had to have an invitation to Harry Josh's apartment to get this gorgeous hair, right? Yeah, it was definitely a very cool way of, I don't know. I, I, I Again, I wasn't orchestrated. It just came up authentically as it does. And now in retrospect, when I think back to 20 years ago when it all happened, yeah, it was super cool the way they had put it up. Like I was like this elite, you know, secret guy that you could only get to if you knew his number and was friends with like Shalom, you know, like it was that kind of thing. Yeah. It was super cool. And that wasn't my intention. It just happened like that. So it was very cool that it happened like that. And I'm kind of grateful that it did. You know, what I was thinking about was while working on a ton of models hair in your own home might be scary or intimidating. I mean, it's a huge responsibility in a way. Do you think that being able to do beautiful heads of hair in this kind of like relaxing and disarming way at home allowed you to be more creative in those years? hundred percent because I didn't have the weight of an editor or photographer on top of me being like, don't make her too blonde. Don't do this. Don't do that. Cause then I get nervous. But if I was just doing what I genuinely thought was the right thing to do without any interference, I was always happy with my end result. The girls look great, you know, and that's ultimately what really launched me is Giselle's hair. I mean, now we call it ombre 22 years later. I didn't really have a name for it back then, you know, I just was doing it like that. And then when you go, any interview that's ever been done about this type of hair coloring, whenever they do a family tree, I think was maybe British in style did a family tree on ombre. And I was the godfather. They put me at the top. Of course. They're like you were the first person in 1999 or 98 to be doing this. Oh, I love that they did that story. And they kind of like followed the tree down to like all the other celebrities that had it. But ultimately just always at the top saying she was the first person to have this kind of look. That people are still... There's variations, of course. It's been, you know, like anything over time, it's been redone, retweaked, reimagined in great ways. I'm seeing beautiful aftermaths of what we've done. That's a great way of describing it, the aftermath. Yeah, no, what people are doing now is gorgeous. If I have anything to do with like the beginning of that inspiration from the photograph, then wow, I feel so lucky that I was able to contribute to global hair color. (laughs) 100%. Harry, what is your creative process like working on editorial, working on red carpet, when things have to come together quickly and when multiple parties are involved? It starts usually with the subject, right? So, and everything has this different variation, right? So like if I'm working, let's say a red carpet, I'm going to use that as an example. Those have become very high, big jobs now. Not your weekly red carpet, but like a Met Ball or like a Oscars or something like that, you know? So that kind of process for me starts very early. It's not like an editorial where you kind of just walk in the day before and you might know like, oh, we might need extensions tomorrow. We're doing boho, you know, like that kind of thing. This is a more like a couture hairstyle. So we're looking at, you know, what's the dress like? Who is the designer she's wearing? What looks would work for this designer that still are going to be different and strong enough? Like, you you work with Burberry, he hates hair makeup. You know, he doesn't want hair makeup. So like, how do you make it work? 
and make it strong, but still give the brand what they deserve their talent should look like, but still get enough, you know, hoopla out of it that you feel satisfied as well. It's taking into consideration all parties involved. You have a designer, you have a subject who's going to be wearing this. Maybe that subject has a very high profile husband or wife that you have to now consider what they're going to look like next to this person. There's a lot of variables that you have to think about. Will this person's head look good 360 or should they look forward the whole time? You know, all of these aspects you're going to have to think about when it comes to creating a look that will hopefully live in infamy, Right. you know, down the road. And people are like, oh yeah, that was a great moment. The creative process is really becoming more limited because there's time has become such an issue now. There's just not enough time. We need so much to squeeze in. So that's a red carpet scenario. But like for an editorial, it's like, I don't get the opportunity to play like we used to as much because there's always a deadline and like, oh, we have to do this all by today. And the model has a heart out of five and we have to do social and we have to do this. Very true. No time to be like, oh, maybe we'll try this. And if it doesn't work after lunch, we'll change it. It's like, no, we can't. We've got way too much to do in one day. Yeah. So now I go into a very different, like, okay, how can it be creative and practical in the time that I have? These days you get to pick and choose how and where to spend your time as an artist. Exactly. So if I know models leaving at three, we're not going to try four, four wigs on her. That's not going to have time. So let's just do this. This is going to work. And it's going to be strong. And that's what we do. I don't feel like I'm ever coming to the table with less because of this intention. It's more like I come to my decision quicker. What types of jobs do you like working on now? You really have a hugely successful product line that has made a really big mark in this business. And we're going to talk about that next. But aside from that, what types of jobs are you choosing to work on these days? Well, to be completely honest, this particular window of my life is dedicated solely right now to my tools. I'm barely, barely working because I have so much in the pipeline right now for my tools. Like it's a full-time job operating that brand and keeping it afloat. And we have a bunch of stuff coming out in the fall. So I literally spend most of my time because if you're saying for my brand, I have to talk to Korea and France as well. So my time zones are a little out of the whack. So that's why early mornings are always great for me. Yes, I get that. Most of my vendors are halfway around the world. So I'm already up at like five, six making phone calls. Yeah. For me, my focus is my brand. It's my legacy I'd like to leave behind. So I have less time doing photo shoots and carpets. I do occasional stuff here and there, but my focus for at least the short term, uh, next year at least, is going to be heavily focused on building this brand out huge. Because that is my dream. That is my desire is to be of service, to create a luxury tool brand that will revolutionize the way people will mm. no longer buy disposable items. They will invest yeah. in an expensive item and know that it will last them five to 10 years versus buying crappy things from Ricky's and then throwing them away the next day. Yeah. In the beginning, investors basically eventually came to you about making your line of Harry Josh Pro Tools. How did you approach the opportunity? Do you remember your thinking at the time? Hugely. As a matter of fact, they didn't come to me for tools. Mine, I'm with CAA, um, which typically represents like, you know, actors and directors. And, yeah. But they do have a little division called Lifestyles. And this lifestyles division were a group of people who they thought could be like, who did a lot of TV segments. Cause I've done like the Oprah show and the today show and good morning America, blah, blah, blah. I do a lot of that stuff. So they like to think that those artists can go further than what the average salon hairdresser or editorial stylist can go. So they had come to me and they said, we want to do a wet goods line with you. Wet goods mean gel, shampoo, hairspray, styling out products. Oh, so it started with wet goods. That's what they came to me. The offer was wet goods. And they came to me and I turned them down. And I just said, listen, I really appreciate the offer. It's a dream for, you know, a hairdresser to have 
backing by a big company to want to you know put money behind them and create a label for them. But honestly, as tempting as it sounds, I just don't think it will make an impact because the shelf space is so crowded with every celebrity hairdresser doing their own hairline. Yeah. And all of their hairlines are good. Yeah. Like Garrett's hairline is excellent. Serge's hairline is excellent. Orbe's hairline is excellent. Yeah. Orlando's hairline is excellent. Chris McMillan's hairline is excellent. So it's like, I'm now fighting for shelf space against people that have bigger audiences, bigger everything. And I'm like, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I, I said to them, like, I'm going to pass. I go, they say, well, what would you want to do? I said, honestly, I, I really think the tools are where it's at. There's no hairdresser behind tools. The tools that all of us use are being created in labs by engineers and PR people. And I'm like, I want a hairdresser to come up with the way these tools should be made and invented for hairdressers. What year was that, Harry? Nine years ago. When that hairdryer came onto the market, it really changed everything. I remember it. I think I was going to Serge's salon at the time. It definitely was a mark. I, I at the time, had launched probably one of the most expensive hair dryers on the marketplace, which is, you know, 300 bucks or 400 bucks, or I can't remember what it was, but it was the most of the time. And it's because it was like hand assembled in France and like nobody else was doing it like this. So I was trying to bring craftsmanship back to these products so that people would be like, oh, it's expensive, but you're not paying for his name. You're paying for how well it's made. Did it take a long time for them to shift from wet goods? Oh, yeah. Well, they said no. They walked away. They said it's way too expensive to do the the way you want to do it. And I said, I understand. And they left. And that was it. And six months later, they came back. And they said, listen, we want to work with you on any level. So if tools is what you want to do, let's talk about how you want to do tools. Wow. These are divine opportunities in life where you have walked away, trusting that the universe will bring what it's supposed to. Yes. When I first said no to this, what good line, just to give you a little gauge of like what it's like to say no to someone like that. My agents were pissed. My agents were like, you fucking idiot. Like, you know how hard it was to bring them to the table. These guys are about to drop a huge chunk of cash in your pocket to build your brand. And I just said, yeah, but I just don't think it's worth it. I don't think they're going to be happy as investors. Like it's not going to make the money. And I'm going to have to hustle like tenfold to compete against my friends. I don't want to do that. You know, so I didn't want to be a part of that, that system. I wanted to kind of create a whole nother thing that was going on. You had a lot of conviction about this. Did you ever feel, oh, what did I just pass up? No, I've never felt like that because I trust every decision I made Yeah, that it was the right thing to do. Like, certainly I've obviously gotten job options and I can't do them. You know what I mean? And then I see it and I'm like, oh, yeah, I would have been such a good job to do, you know, like so nice. But then I let it go immediately. I'm like, well, you weren't available. So whatever, you've got stuff to do. It's no big deal. Like, let it go. What have you learned most from becoming an entrepreneur? Oh my God, there's nothing better than being your own boss. Nobody will care like you care. Nobody. Yeah about anything. I mean, that's the same for your magazine. You know what I mean? No one's going to do what you're going to do. No one's going to work as hard as you're going to work. Yeah. The process of that is beautiful because you get to really make what you want to make. Totally, 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 totally with full integrity and full, like, you know, I have full control over the, the launch product. So it makes me feel really good that I know I'm not just putting something out there. That's a piece of shit just to make a dollar. You know, it's actually good. And I know that any review that people would try it would be they're like, this is a good product and he is delivering on his price. What do you believe your strong suit is as an entrepreneur? Integrity, 100%. I would never make something just for a profit. Never. Like if someone just said to me like, oh, if you make a zigzag comb right now, you'll sell a billion of them because everyone wants one. I'm like, that is a piece of plastic that will go over, be dead next year. 
like a fidget spinner. You know, those fidget spinner kids had last year or two years ago. Mm-hmm. So like these are little ancillary items that are cheap that end up in landfill in three years because the trend dies. So I would be an evergreen product company that makes the things that are the staples you'll never not need. We talked a little bit about this. Well, we, t- we touched on it really. You have such a positive attitude in life and a beautiful belief in these laws of the universe and that like attracts like. How do you deal with the ugly? The industry is cutthroat and not short of difficult personalities. Honestly, I rise above it. I think it's okay. I let them shit all over me. I don't care. (laughs) It's no big deal. I don't retaliate. I just don't care. Like, I don't care if I'm like the one guy on the set that like nobody wants to like, I'm still, I'm still killing them with kindness. I'm still being super nice. I don't care if they're walking around the corner and talking shit about me every time it's lunch. Like, I I really don't care. I only worry about what I'm putting out and I have no control over what everyone else is putting out around me. So I'm not going to try to correct you, try to, you know, be all woke in your face. And yeah, I don't care. You can vibrate at any frequency you want around me. You can gossip and complain and do everything. I just won't be a part of it. I'll just be silent in your presence. How did the pandemic affect your creativity? I'm dying to know what Harry Josh was feeling and doing during the crux of it. It was divine intervention for me on a personal level. It was wonderful for me because all these years I've been neglecting my brand because I've been trying to keep my work going. And ultimately, I, all my partners are like, at some point, you're going to have to focus more on this if you want it to grow. Like, you know what I mean? You can't just like have it as an afterthought, you know? Like if you want this business to grow, like you need to give up your kind of hairstyling business and focus on this. And that pandemic allowed me to do that. All of a sudden work was just pulled out of my feet. wasn't going on. Mm. So once I was able to switch gears, those first five months where I wasn't working that much at all, like a day a month, like where that was pretty much the bulk of the calls that were coming in, it got me all geared up into this brand. And now we've planned out the next four years. So I never would have had that opportunity. So again, the universe provided, it's like, don't worry that you're not doing covers. Don't worry that you're not doing magazines because you have something bigger to do right now. And that's your brand. And once I got started a year now it's now or or past two years probably since this all went down or close to two years on the marker. I am so embedded in the brand that like now it's like I don't even think about work or missing work. Like it's like an afterthought. As a matter of fact, this morning I just got an email just saying like, oh, Arena's shooting the cover of I can't even remember some European magazine. I'm like, I can't do it because I have meetings for my other stuff. It's wonderful when I get the calls and I get really appreciative that I'm like, wow, they're still calling. That's so cool. But ultimately my services to the brand because I feel my brand will reach more people than my, you know, my updo will. You're nurturing your baby right now. I am nurturing my baby and I'm at that age now and in my fifties, I don't want to be dragging my kid around town. You know what I mean? I want to create a business. How do you get your best ideas? When do you think they come to you? Meditation. Meditation. And is that also how you relax to get creative? Do you use meditation to tap into creativity? Meditation is the elixir of life. Okay, I better get on it. When you calm the noise around you, from that rested, balanced state comes creativity. You cannot be creative when you have a hundred things running around in your mind. Did I pay that? Is that person going to get that? Or is that rent going to be due? Did we get that sorted? Is there a refund coming on that? Like you could push it to the corner, but it's still there. You want to be in an empty room that allows a download from the universe of creativity to fall into you. And only when you're at a relaxed, calm, level, breathing state, deep breath state, are you able to receive that kind of information. 
and manifested into something physical. What's inspiring you today? It was magazines at one point and it was runway fashion shows. Is there something new now that is holding your inspiration? I love being an observer in this world now instead of a participator. Love that. I, I feel like I've stepped out of the matrix. I am now an observer. So I no longer take anything emotionally or have any attachment to what I see, feel, or exchange. I'm just the observer. What is your advice for assistants or for people starting out? Another thing that I love that you've said is that an assistant needs to be at the caliber of the key or the lead hairdresser that they work for. You need to be able to recreate their technique. I think people don't realize that. So maybe it might take you a little longer to get to where you are. That is ultimately what you need to be able to do because when you become a hairdresser at this level, you're, you're not always learning just hair. You're actually learning the business. So you have to learn politics, how to talk to people. When's the right time to create, you know, throw a creative suggestion in? When is the wrong time to throw a creative suggestion in? And that comes from being on set and witnessing your boss work. So that's where that experience comes from. Doesn't matter how good you are at updos and French twists and micro corn braids and all that kind of stuff. If you don't know how to handle yourself on a group of professionals, you'll never succeed. Even if you're the best hairdresser on the planet who can do anything, if you don't understand the mechanics of what it's like to work with different types of personalities and dynamics and learn how to sail through them, you'll never succeed. And what hair do you love now on a totally different subject? Oh gosh. For me right now, my favorite haircut I'm obsessed is Isabelle Fontana's haircut. Orlando Pito just cut it off last week at the shows. Super short in the back, like almost shaved. And then like surfer kind of skater front. It looks like Linda Evangelista when she cut her hair short. That's obviously where it was going. But to me, the way he cut it, it almost could be like, do you remember when Erin Wasson first came onto the scene and she had a shave? She had her all underneath was skater shaved. Yeah. And he's had the kind of flat iron little short hair on top. It yeah. almost looks a little like that. So it's edgy and cool. And for me, the reason why I'm really drawn to that is because it takes a certain somebody to do that in this climate. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like what's going on in the world and people are so fucking scared to just do anything. It takes something to be like, fuck all of you all. I'm going to shave my fucking head and it's going to look awesome because I'm a fucking model and I can wear it. And she can. And it looks so cool. And so for me, that's very inspiring to see people that are totally breaking down walls. being like, I'm going to shit. If, you know, long extensions to your ass are coming in, I'm shaving my head. What have you not yet tackled that you're dying to do? Anything? Mm, no, because I think for the most of the part, my real focus now is truly the brand. And I have so much that I want to focus on that. You have tons to tackle in that arena, including down the road, a very potential wet goods that I have been thinking for years of how I would do this. Because what I'm wanting to do is doesn't exist quite yet. They're working on it, these ideas that I have. So I don't know how long it will take, but I certainly will have my feet wet in that arena as well at one point. Well, you so generously gave me a bunch of your tools after we did our Eve Houston cover shoot and I use them religiously, like I run them to the ground. Can you tell us a little bit about all the exciting or some of the exciting? Yeah, I can, I can dabble for sure. I think we're going to have some serious, incredible wireless technology coming by the end of the year that will be game changing for people on the go, people who are on sets. That's exciting. Very, very exciting stuff for that. That will be coming out hopefully by the end of the year, if not early spring next year. And then the rest is a little too tight lip for me to mention, but that will be definitely the first thing that I can say is going to happen is we're going to see some incredible wireless technology. 
I love it. Thanks for giving us that nugget. As we close our podcast, we always talk about our six favorite things in the moment. Harry, what six things in life, in your lifestyle, are you loving right now? I'm obsessed with my juicer. <laughs> what kind of juicer do you have? I'm obsessed with the kitchen, to be quite frankly. So Amaze Chef, A-M-Z Chef, is the best juicer on the market. It's Is it simple to use is what we want to know. Because that cleaning situation can be tough. Super easy to clean, super simple to use. This is the whole reason I got this one. It's not even expensive. Like there's ones that are 500 bucks. It's like less than 180. And it was like so basic and so simple. And my celery juice has never been better. So I'm like super into that. Then I'm also obsessed with the Ninja, <laughs> which is a blender slash food processor slash dough maker. Oh, it makes dough too. Interesting. Yeah. It can need dough for you as well. So these are the things I spend the bulk of my day because I'm home most of the time on Zoom calls. So these home things are definitely things that are things like the Ninja, the Amazing Chef, my Le Crisette crock pot. What color do you have? I got a green Dutch oven, like a green one. Love it. That's three. What about number four? And then I would say my incense that I light daily is the Cinnamon Projects. I love Cinnamon Projects. I love how it looks. I'm very big on scents and sound. I also have a sage stick that I have constantly lit every like hour on the hour. I just love the smell of sage going on in my house all the time. And then lastly, I would say my last obsession of the current moment is Inventing Anna on Netflix. (laughs) We love Inventing Anna over here too. Harry, thank you so much for your time. It was a treat to catch up with you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you too. Take care. Bye.